You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guest. And I gotta tell you something, people. Joanne is on this pescatarian diet, so at night it's fish and vegetables. During the day, I eat whatever I want. But as she's been on this for like a month and a half, I said to her, Lent's coming up. What are you going to give up? And she said, I'm going to give up meat. And I said, no, you've already given up meat. And she looked at me. She goes, well, at least I'm not giving up sex. So I said, you know what? She can stick in her diet. Anyway, we have a great show today. Uh, my guest, uh, fellow Philly fan, uh, this, the, just a great guy. He hasn't been on for a while. He, like me, left L.A. a while ago. He has a brand new show I'm going to talk about. My guest is Rich Scheidner. How you doing, Scheids? Hey, Coop, how are you, man? Good. I, I got to ask you, I want to start off with, uh, we, we had messaged a little back and forth, and you said how you're you're angry at baseball, and I know you're a big fan like me. Why why are you pissed off about baseball right now? You know, the hypocrisy is too much. The, the Oscars clearly cheated, cheated, cheated to win the World Series, but old Pete Rose gambled years ago, they won't let you back to call a fate. It's just too much. It's too much. It wouldn't take away the Astros championship, but they won't let Pete Rose in the Hall of Fame. I mean, how long is the guy been held out? 40 years now? Enough. Enough. I know. It is amazing. I mean, I sat there. The funny thing is, I don't know if you saw he never, this. He never, he never, he always bet on his team. He never, you know, I mean, I look, I didn't say he was doing was right, but if you're going to let the Astros keep their championship, let Pete Rose in the Hall of Fame. I know. Why well, I always say that, too, about him not betting on his team. He bet on his team to win. So it's like, that's actually, exactly. that that's adds to baseball. Right. He always bet on his team to win. Yeah. But regardless, I, I just don't like the fact that the Astros keep the championship and then you're not letting Pete Rose in the Hall of Fame. I don't know. It's it's irritating. So uh, I got to ask you, how's North Carolina? Well, well, why did you? What, when did? How long ago was when you left LA? Like two years ago, two and a half years ago? What made no, you? No, no, a year ago. We left. We left uh, a year ago. This month, February. We now, left uh, a year ago, February. We, we we took possession of this house here, February fourth last year. I, I just I always had one of the move back to East Coast like you. I wanted, to, and I, 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 you know, I. I LA was done with me, I was done with it. And there was no reason why I didn't that. There was nothing I was going to do where I had to stay there. I didn't want to write on a staff. I didn't want to act in movies or TV. So doing what I'm doing, creating my own things and, and doing stand-up out here, it didn't matter where I lived. And, and that's the case. And I want to live someplace beautiful and nice. And I've always had my eye on Asheville. It's a beautiful little city, a little town, whatever you call it, like 90,000 people in, in the in the You know, it's funny, you know, you know, Jeff Martyr, Jeff, when Jeff left uh, L.A., he said, you know, you after, yeah. after a while you start to, you know, decompress. And I happen to me, too, because we're so used to the bullshit with L.A., the traffic and stuff like that. How was your how was your adjustment? How was your adjustment time and how long did it take you to get used to? I mean, Asheville's a very different life than, you know, L.A. Totally, totally. You know, I go around to, to, to they have these open mics and performance venues all over the place. So you go to open mic and there's a guy telling a story. There's a woman singing a song she wrote or singing somebody else's song and some comic going on stage. Nobody's up there going, uh, I gotta get to this next place. They're just doing it that night for kicks that night. There's a whole, even the performance stuff out here has a different tinge to it. So there's not that uh, constant of uh, trying to get there and I'm hanging on. You know, you, you see a lot of Guys in my generation just hanging on LA for what? They've been weighed and measured and found insufficient. They're not going to come back around to us. <laughs> you know, let's like give those six year olds a chance. We we missed them at home when they were thirty. Let's try them now. You know, it's it's past. You know, so I didn't feel like just hanging around to, to, for whatever reason. And I'm at the age where you know who knows where the whole thing will stop. And somebody asked me, "Are you going to retire?" I go. Retire from what? I don't work. I do stand-up comedy. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll retire when they stop giving me work. When they give me work, then I'm retired. When I, when I no longer can go on, then I'm retired. But other than that, I write. I do things I want to do. Uh, I'm writing scripts or whatever. I, I don't have to live in L.A. for that. Now, how is your lifestyle adjusted, though? Like, just the, to be out and you're in the mountains. And I know I think you posted something on Facebook. There was a bear or a oh snake. Oh, my God. you got, you got to see my view. I'm sitting in my office right now looking at a mountain range. 
I got a clear, I'm, I'm on the side of the mountains. We, li- we live on the side of a mountain. And I'm looking across a valley at some other mountains. I'm not looking at a bunch of wires hanging out my street and some guy <laughs> illegally parked there. The other guys illegally parked there. No, no, what's I, it? I told you, look, we, the, first, the first day we come here, right? We got to go down to the downtown. We got to go downtown and sign some papers for the house. Okay, so we just driven across the country, beat it across in three days to get here. Our stuff's not even in here yet. I go, Where, what time are we supposed to be here? My wife goes, we got to be down to, uh, you know, this, this bank, nine o'clock in the morning. I said, oh, we better leave at seven. <laughs> I'm thinking that way. <laughs> oh, that's... It took us 15 minutes to drive from the mountain to downtown Asheville. We sat in a ca- coffee shop for an hour and a half. <laughs> that, that happens to me, too. I'm stuck on 73, and, you know, you, you're familiar with uh, South Jersey. And 73 is the main yeah. road. And I'm sitting there, and I'm going to something for a business thing, and um, I'm starting to get irritated because I haven't gone like a mile, and it took me a few minutes. Then I went, "Holy crap!" In LA, this would have taken me two hours. Right, right, right. Yeah, it, 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 it's it, all that stuff, and I don't know. We just like it. just like everything about our house and where we live, and. Um, where I where I run, you know, I like to run. So I mean, everything about it just is a different place. I mean, I run through this, this, this. I just step out of my 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 door and go take a run on this road that all the cars are on, and a view a view of all these mountains. And, you know, I don't know. I just I'm just glad I did it. I, I look. I love I love living in L.A. I have nothing against L.A. I mean, I had a great time here and a great run there, and uh, and kids were born there and and raised there and. I had lots of work and a nice pension I got from the Writers Guild for being there. But, um, you know, it was time for doing something else. Now, what's it like writing in a different... I mean, writing can be writing, but is it more relaxing? Do words come to you more as you write with such a good view and you're not around the industry? I, I Yeah, I feel like I'm doing something else different out here. And I, I started doing something different. I started doing this, this show in the history stand-up comedy. I started doing that. And, uh, and writing, um, yeah, I, I just like my little office here. We, you know, we did the thing where, you know, you sell a house in L.A., you come down to another place like this, you know, we did okay. You know, we made a nice trade. We made a nice trade for houses. So I got my, I, you know, I, I didn't have an office before. I just kind of wrote in different parts of the house that we lived in. And I threw a desk in a corner here. Now I have, like, an office. I feel like uh, it's my little place where I come up and I, I just, Well, you know, it's funny, since I talked to you, uh, after I talked to you, your your book came out. Tell, tell the listeners about the book you had written and about your stories of stand-up. Yeah, I, I, I wrote a book on, on really my journey, you know, from, uh, you know, going, going from New Jersey where I grew up into stand-up comedy. Then I covered the boom. I really tried to cover every aspect of the comedy boom in the 80s and every aspect of stand-up comedy. I had stories there about Hector, that story about you know, fist fighting a hacker on stage, that stories about joke thievery, everything. And I covered, I think, like the major comedians, little chapters on, and all the chapters are quick. I mean, I designed it so you can read it on toilet bowl. And, uh, and then I ended when I was sort of writing for the Roseanne show. And, and when I got quick doing stand-up comedy to start writing for TV, right around the same time the boom was over. You know, the clubs started collapsing and, and, and there were less clubs and, and uh, the early 90s was a, a different time. So I, that's the framework of the book. And then just stories about everybody, uh, Robin Williams, Hicks, or Sam Tennyson, or whatever, and, uh, and, and my own stories. And so uh, people seem to really like it. It's, it's about 70-some chapters, but none of them are more than three pages. You know? Now, why, why do you think the comedy scene, that boom, just stopped? What do you think happened? Oh, well, but it was fresh and it was new when it started. And people didn't see anything like it. So remember when we went into town, the place was packed. I mean, I, comics, they can't understand how we, we didn't have to do any publicity. You didn't have to have Twitter followers or any of that. You, the clubs were packed with people coming out to see young comics. They just depended on the club to put funny people on stage. And it was new and it was fresh. Well, it became more and more done on, on TV. Obviously, it was Evening the Improv. Evening the Improv was the first of his... There was um, Norm... Cosby's comedy shop in the late 70s and that went off the air and then the evening at the improv came on the air in early 82 and 
it was cable access and all, and it was like a night, it just showed what the comedy clubs were going to be. Here's one young comic after another. And then all these other TV shows started coming on. So they were putting stand-up comics on, not just The Tonight Show, obviously, but all these other cable access shows. I remember one time we were sitting down the Comedy Magic Club down on Moses Beach, right? And a bunch of comics were backstage and they got, uh, uh, watching television. We just started flipping around the channels and we found like seven shows just doing stand-up comics, like seven strip shows. You know, there was Caroline's and Evie the Improv and then the Comic Strip Live and there were like seven of them one at one time. So it just kind of cable built it and then cable tilted. That's the way I look at it. I mean, they, they built it up and and, and, and let people know there were comics out there, they don't, but there were so many, it was oversaturated. I mean, you go, you go into a town, I remember the first time you go into a town, maybe a small town, maybe it's like Lubbock, Texas. Bill Hicks and I were in there, opened up this club in Lubbock, Texas, I think it was like 83, 84. And there were two or three guys that came out saying, yeah, we're doing stand-up comedy. You know, we've never seen anything like you guys because we just don't know anybody else was doing it and we really had no place to do it. Now they had a club, they could do it. Next time you come into town, there are 15 guys saying they're doing stand-up comedy hanging around the back of the room. Because, look, let's face it, the, the, the opening acts back then, the MCs back then, were getting $1,000, $1,500 a week. The middle acts were getting $2,500 a week. We were getting, the headliners getting two or three times that money. So you're, you're a guy working down at the Sears Appliance Department, right? And you're kind of a funny guy. You tell jokes, and you're, 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 you think you've got a good sense of humor. And you get down to this comedy club that's a new club in town. And you hang around a little bit, and you go, ah, oh, these guys are funny. Then you talk to the guy who's the most approachable, which is the MC. You, know, you go up to him or her, and you talk to the MC, and then you find out the MC's making $1,500 a week, and you're making $400 a week. Well, what are you going to do? You want to quit your job and start doing stand-up comedy? That's what you're going to do. And that's what happened. Now, for you, I mean, you've been on TV so many times, and you've, you've your new show is all about the history of stand-up. Who were your biggest influences from when you were a kid until when you were a, let's say, a teen, and then yeah. when you got into it? Yeah, you know, um, well, Art Carney was a big one. I watched The Honeymooners a lot. And people who saw me when I first started, there were older people who come and go, you like Art Carney, don't you? I go, yeah, they go, you could see Art Carney in you. Because the way I moved, I guess, or something. So there's kind of, you know, I used to watch the Red Skelton show, but I didn't do the acts like them. But, but my dad had a lot of comedy albums, and I'd listen. And uh, I like Bob Newhart, of course, and I, I, I liked, you know, so when I got older, and I was listening to Lenny Bruce and Richard Pryor, of course, George Carlin, and then Robert Klein was a huge influence. I think Robert Klein was probably one of the bigger influences of my generation, because he was just a little bit older when he broke big. And, uh, you know, he had the first HBO special. I remember seeing him, uh, I, I, I went down to... Um, uh, American University. I was at Gettysburg College in American University about an hour and a half away. And some guy and I, he, I mean, somebody, he told me, I don't know. We went down to see Robert Klein at American University. I, I nearly fell out of the preacher's laugh and I was laughing so hard. I couldn't control myself. I couldn't. He, he was just, so he was a big influence because he did smart comedy. He was like, he never talked down to the audience. He just, just assumed that they could get what he was talking about. Now, your show... America's Reflection in the Funhouse Mirror, the history of stand-up comedy. How did you come up with that? How did, how did, how did this whole idea start? <laughs> well, you know, Phyllis Diller, I became friends with Phyllis Diller. And she was a big one on, on the history of stand-up comedy. She was like, you know, I, <clears throat> I don't let my sh show, I get schooled about how little I knew about the history of stand-up comedy around 82. Even before that, I met, um, I got embarrassed once I was in you know where Duke's was? Duke's was a, a, a coffee shop that was at, at the Tropicana Hotel. It was a rock and roll hotel on Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood. And when I came out to do EVTM probably in 81, we were partying like crazy. We were, we were partying so hard that rock and rollers knocked on our door and said, hey, man, we got to get some sleep. Like, five in the morning, this guy comes to us. Like, he's got, like, like, you know, flock of seagull hair. And he's like, hey, man, we got to get some we're like, no, we ain't close to getting sleep, probably. And uh, so one morning I walk into Duke's, was a restaurant. I mean, it wasn't morning, it was like in the afternoon. I'm going to get breakfast in the afternoon, right? And I got a leather jacket on, a motorcycle jacket I was wearing, and a t shirt. I had to look back and I could see what happened. I walk in, and there, sitting there at the counter, is 
Tom Waits. I mean, that's the thing about L.A., right, which I had not experienced before. It's my first time in L.A. I said, I just blurted out, Tom Waits. Oh, my God, it's Tom Waits. You know, it's not a guy that looks like Tom Waits. It's Tom Waits. And he just kind of looks at me. And then I'm embarrassed, right? So I go sit down and I think I'm smoking. I'm smoking. I know I was smoking. I'd smoke when I eat breakfast. You know, I was smoking and I ordered breakfast. And he just comes over his place and might have not joined you. <laughs> he just sits down with me, right? And uh, he probably says, what band are you with? I remember that. I remember him asking what band. I'm not a band, I'm a comedian. But I and he starts asking me questions about stand-up comedy. And I got no answers for him, you know. And I, I know I bored him because it wasn't about a couple minutes later that, you know, I'd finished up and he just like, oh, I talk to him. Because I didn't know anything. You know, I, I just knew what I was doing. I didn't know anything about the business I was in. I met Phyllis Diller, and she started encouraging me, you know, you, you, you gotta learn. You, you should write a book about it. You know, you should write a book about the history of stand-up comedy. I started researching it, and I found out that it was the first stand-up comic, and I started reading more and more about it. And then, then I came to a kind of thing of like what stand-up comedy says about America, and it's the most reflective art form. It's a, it immediately reflects in the jokes and the comedy routines the stand-up says. Says a lot about American zeitgeist, like what America's obsessed about. What it's afraid of what it says everything about the country in real time it's a real honest a, you know weird reflection but it's really says a lot about the country so i started looking at spandex that way and that's why i came up with a framework for the show from the beginning it's always been like that and how things change how war changes comedy how technology like radio or electronic amplification or or any of these things that change stand-up comedy and, and what stand-up comedy said about America. Now, in this day and age, how do you think politics has changed America? I know you, you write political stuff at time, funny stuff on Facebook. I know your friend Kevin Rooney is, has masterful posts. He's so good. Yeah, he is, he is. But he, do you think, Kevin Rooney's one of them. Yeah. Do you think that, you know, because people are always making fun of Trump which is fine. But do you think that's starting to become overplayed where there's like no originality left? It's almost like those I've fallen, I can't get up jokes back in the day. Well, yeah, this is what happens. Every, this is a funny thing to me because I, I wrote a thing about this. I never posted it. I, I'm not a political comedian, but I, I post funny stuff on Facebook, get rid of it, or I send it to Bill Maher, who is a political comedian. And I, don't, I don't hold on to anything, really. But I, I, I noticed that just goes, you know, everybody was like, oh, when Trump is president, it's going to be a gold mine for a comedian. I said, no, it's not. When it happens, it's not. Because he, he's too constant. He, he, there's never a break. And you can only see someone stupid or this or that so many times where it just becomes boring. You can't find a new angle. There's, it's, it's relentless. You know, back in George Bush's day, yeah, every couple of months you do something really stupid they can make fun of. Or Carter had had his brother Billy Carter, who was kind of a redneck drunk. They could make fun of him, and, and you know, Ronald Reagan's old, being old and senile, but it's it's too much with Trump. It's across the board. It's the, it's the Adderall. It's the Putin thing. It's the, it's the, it's the ignorance of knowing what he's doing, or, or bumbling words, or, it's just non-stop, and so it's just, it's like, it just becomes a white noise. Now, do you think that cheapens the art of comedy somewhat? No, it doesn't cheapen it. It's it just, you know, it gets to the point where I just I'm just bored by it all. It's just kind of like you just kind of like I I I, I want to do what I can to for what what I think should be done, you know. But other than that, I'm not going to spend. It, it just it just everybody like you said. The way I'm with Facebook is, and you've seen this, or any of these social media, Twitter, or any of them, something happens, and of course there's three thousand million jokes that are the same. Something happens and everybody's got the same take on it. Or somebody reads it from somebody else and they do their version of it. So, you know, in stand-up comedy, that kind of has to take months to develop where somebody comes up with a fresh idea and they're doing it for a couple months then somebody hacks that joke and then somebody else sees them do it. They hack that version of the hack joke. And it's a, in, a, in five, six months, something becomes hacked, right? Where you go, okay, everybody's doing their, like you said, I fall and I can't get up, whatever. There's always one comic that saw that commercial for the first time and figured out a joke out of it, right? But on Facebook or Twitter, it's immediate. I mean, it is so fast. By you, you something that happens, and within two hours, you're like, all right, enough, stop, we get it. <laughs> right? It's already hacked. 
Hey. <laughs> well, you know what cracks me up, though, also about Facebook and when it comes to, like, Trump and stuff like that? I think there's some people who just sit there and they post something anti-Trump to, one, to get likes because I know a lot of people don't like him, or two, to just start conflict. And that's always cracks me up because it's like, how do people get into talking, arguing for so long on Facebook? Like, people put argue for hours and I'm like, don't you have anything better to do? Oh, there's nothing, there's no, there's no greater waste of time. At the end of your life, at the end of your life, when you're deathbed, you think of it as though, I just want one more Twitter war. I mean, really, <laughs> honestly, who cares? There's no greater waste of time than arguing with people on social media. I'd rather spend my time trying to create life out of a jar of mud and a battery and jumper cables, all right? That's how I'd rather spend my time. It's a waste, it's a waste, a complete waste. That's why I stay off it as much as possible, because... And people think they're funny on there. They are. You know, I, I love when, when somebody finds a funny meme. You know, it's a, a meme is funny. And then they post something clever above the meme, their own, so that the, when people laugh at the meme, they go, well, you're really laughing at my clever line, too, right? <laughs> There's so many people who think they're funny on Facebook than they are. You want to find out you're funny? Go on stage and tell your little jokes. That's how you find out you're funny. If they don't laugh, it ain't funny. But on Facebook, you got a lot of clever people. Well, you know, you know what cracks me up too is you know when you when you put a clever joke, you know, and I post some clever jokes, you you know, and then someone who you know who's maybe performed like t five or ten times writes a tag on it or tries to make it better, <laughs> and you're like, what are you doing? Like, dude, I performed, you know, and it, it pisses me off, and it shouldn't. <laughs> See, that's what I'm saying. You know, it, it, that's what I like about doing the show. You're performing live. You do a joke, they laugh. You do another joke, you keep it going. You don't stop to discuss the joke every time. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you'd realize what a what a bunch of idiots there are out in the audience. Because that's what Facebook exactly said happens. I watch what Kevin Rooney. Kevin Rooney will write some brilliant piece, and you'll see some guys trying to top him in their comments underneath. You go, you didn't come close to topping him, and you just did a, another version of what the joke he just did was, and you just go. See, you don't have to deal with that in, 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 when you're doing stand-up comedy live. You don't have to deal with everybody's little comments under your joke. You just keep it moving. Now, the show you're doing, that's History Stand-Up, tell me more about it. I mean, what do, because if people see your name, a lot of times they'll come to see Rich Scheidner. Now, I know first, I worked with you in Valencia one time, and it was pretty amazing because... It was you were telling stories and you were going on the bits, which is hard to do because people are usually storytellers or bit tellers. Yeah. How do people yeah. react? Are people do people know because you you have a bunch of dates coming up? Do people think they're coming to see a Rich Seidner stand up show, or do you think they know that you're you're doing a history? Just tell me more about the show. No, we're yeah we're we're very clear about it. Very clear that we're we're doing a different show. Uh, there's there are only two stories in this show. The show's an hour and fifteen, and then and then I do Q and A like Saturday night. We did like uh, about an hour and forty five total, half hour Q and A. Probably could have done more. I thought that everybody was was kind of had enough, so to speak. You know, but I didn't want to burn them out. But um, you know, it's it's not it's not a anybody thinks doesn't think. There's only two stories in there. One uh, of me with people who are it's there. It's it's an it's a it's part of the show. It's an important part of the show. So it's not my stories in there. It's, but I talk about the first stand-up comic. It was Artemis Ward that I talk about Twain. Kind of go through the linear history, bring it up to uh, to date. But I don't bring it actually up to date. I mean, I stop it right before the comedy boom and the Steve Martin is the last comic I'm talking about. But I wrap it all up. And each time I talk about something like that, the women, when I talk about the women who started doing stand-up comic, the, the first stand-up comic, um, female stand-up comics, then I, I you know, I, I talk about the different changes and then how it affected the women today. I go through Roseanne's and I mention them and how it, how it all pulls together. But nobody's coming to this thing so far thinking they're saying we're going to stand-up comedy. Now, is it humorous storytelling? I mean, how do you, how do you oh, make it's it? Funny. It's funny. They're funny. They're funny stories. I got so many funny stories. I mean, you can't, you can't even, I've, I've been researching this thing like crazy. And, I mean, I did, when I do Q&A, no one's stumped yet. I mean, i got funny stories about anybody. You can name, you can name any comic you want right now. And there's bad, funny stories of them. And I do their lines. I, I, I had to work at finding jokes. You know, the, the first time comic was 
He started in 1861. I had to find jokes from him, jokes then that would get laughs today, and I did. There are jokes that, that he did then that I can get laughs with today. Well, how did you do the research? Because I mean, thank God we have the internet. Because I should be sitting there at the library well, with microfiche. Right now, if I showed you, I, I have I have two two bookcases, big bookcases, filled in my my office right now with just stuff on on history, stand comedy. Then my our attic here is one of those you can walk into it and it's finished attic, and that entire attic is is filled with, with books in boxes and on on shelves up there of, of books about stand-up comics and stand-up comedy. So I did a lot of reading. I did for, that's so like, I started doing this around 2007. I started reading more, you know, books about stand-up. So I've been doing this like, you know, 13 years reading books all the time. So when you sat there and you first there's started... No way, there's, no way, there's no other way of doing it, you know. There are some great old books and sometimes there, you, you got to go, like I did research with them. Uh, I hired this woman to give me newspaper articles and things that from the past, because sometimes it's hard to find um, books on certain areas. And Paul Bill's a top one to cover. Now, when you started writing it, you of course you have the beginning, the first stand-up. How do you chronologically develop it because, you know, you said it was in the 1800s when the first stand-up was and you go to Steve Martin. Yeah. That's a lot of time. I mean, how did you navigate? Yeah, I cover, cover 150 of so, so that's why I keep it to the people who are the big chain, ones that, ones that clearly reflected what was going on in America at the time and what that said about America, right? Okay, I'll give you an example. Jack Benny. I'm just going to give you the short version of this, right? So Jack Benny, what was Jack Benny noted for? His physical comedy. His quietness is that well. Being cheap. Remember cheap. He did cheap jokes. He was the cheapest guy ever. Right? He was the, that was he, he was the first guy to do self deprecating humor. And he put character he took character tricks. If you look at like Rodney Dangerfield, those guys are direct descendants of Jack Benny. So he he said, I'm the cheapest guy. Well when he was doing that, it was during the Great Depression. Everybody had to be thrifty in the Great Depression. So there's a guy, you, you don't have to feel bad about how cheap you're being, because you can laugh at Benny, who's the cheapest guy in the world. <laughs> he was doing a service for America, see? Now, as it develops, you know, an hour and 15 minutes is is a long time. I mean, you know, I mean, stand up and... But it's not a long up. time. It flies by with this, believe me, because it's all jokes. It's, it's, it's very little technical information. It's jokes and, and funny stories. And then, and then knowing like why this is important or what, how this changed. Okay, this thing came in being like, like, do you know the, the you got you got comedy albums from the fifties and sixties, right? Right. So I just make one of why that was such an important thing because all these young people couldn't get on TV then. They were radically different, and and they weren't getting on TV. Mark Saul, Lenny Bruce, all those young comics, Jonathan Winters, they couldn't get on TV, right? So these recordists, they, they're a marketing tool, like YouTube Today, and I, and I talk about this, like YouTube Today, and and, uh, and social media and podcasts, they're marketing tools. Mark Barron became a star by podcast. So he, he, he would cleverly use that marketing tool to let people know who he was, and he attracted Frank Band. That's what it's all about, right? So when you go out into some town, those people all come out to see you. And that's how you become profitable and, and become big and so you let people know who you are and you gather fans, whether you're Bill Hicks or you're, or you're uh, whoever you are. So the records back then, that's what they did for all those young comics. But you couldn't, before that, before the, before the LP, before Hi-Fi Stereos, those records, you couldn't do what you, you couldn't take the equipment into a nightclub and record their old 78s and they only had three, four minutes on each side of the record. Now the LPs in the 50s start coming out, right? The vinyl LPs that we know, that we grew up, I grew up with anyway. And they're 15, 16 minutes on the side. You got, and, and you can take the equipment, it's now portable. You can win it on nightclub and record the comedian with the audience. And it, it changed everything. Can I talk about those, some of those records and some of the guys and how they made them and what was funny? You know, it's funny when you talk about records. 
And, you know, now it seems like every, I always see on Facebook, a comedian's like recording their special, recording the record. And I'm like, the guy, <laughs> the guy's not even a working actor. It's like, what are you selling us at open mics? You know, it's like, I never get that because it's so easy now. But, you know, people don't understand. When, when you say an album, I mean, back in the day, I remember when we'd Steve Martin, Let's Get Small. Everybody had it. It was actually put out by like Columbia or whatever. I mean, it's funny yeah, now yeah. that everybody, I mean, everyone has albums. I think a guy that has been doing comedy for four months, he has he has a double album. Yeah. Look, look, when you, look, if, if you're paying for it, it ain't special. Right. <laughs> you know, the specials were like HBO, Showtime, or something. They came and they paid you. But if you're paying for it, and or your friends are through your crowdfunding, if you're crowdfunding your special, it ain't so special. It's like when guys go, look, there, there are some great podcasts. You're doing one right now. There are some great podcasts. But it always cracks me up in people in L.A. when they try to, to, to act like they're still in show business. Like, well, I'm, I'm going to go do a show today. Oh, yeah, where's, where's the show? What show are you doing? Well, I'm doing Larry's podcast. Well, you know, <laughs> if you're not... If you don't have to drive up to a gate security guard to get on the lot, that's not a show. Okay. Well, it's I, fun. I'm glad you're doing it. But, you know, I just got a different view of show because of my, my error. But I, I truly understand. Well, I, I crack up. I crack up because, you know, I was a stand-up. You were a stand-up. And we was used to say, you know, oh, I'm going on the road for a week. But now it's like everything's a tour. Like stand-ups are like, I'm going on the whatever <laughs> tour. <laughs> Come back with a dollar tour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the bringer tour. There's no, there's no. Look, I know everybody. Look, it's the same thing with uh, uh, people calling themselves comedians. Uh, you know who Robert Schimmel was, right? Oh, he was amazing. Yeah, he was great. So Robert Schimmel told me this great story. This is what I tell everybody. They go, you know, uh, they're, just, they're, they're comedians, okay? So he's a young comic, and he's, he's got a he's got a day job. He's he's out in, in Hollywood, and he, and he's selling stereos at Beverly Beverly Stereo, which it was a really high end stereo place in, in in Hollywood, in West Hollywood. And they get a call from Steve Martin. This is like nineteen eighty, you know, maybe eighty one. They get a call from Steve Martin. He wants a high end stereo. Bring the best you got over for his new house in Beverly Hills. So Schimmel. Because I grabbed that ticket, man. I said, I'm doing this. And he pulls together, whatever it was, Bang and Olsen, you know, the, the, not going to meet you, whatever it was, the best stereo system. You pull together the shop and he runs over to Steve Martin's house. He goes in the living room, Steve Martin shows where he's setting up. He's setting up Steve Martin's stereo. Schindel tells me, he goes, I couldn't help myself. I had to start doing my act. <laughs> he's, he's flinging his jokes out, Steve Martin. He's getting nothing. Steve Martin sits on the couch just watching him. He ain't not laughing. Schimmel says, you know, after a while, I just finally snapped it up. I go, you know, Steve, I'm a comedian, too. And Steve Martin goes, no, you're not. You're a stereo installer. When you make your money doing stand-up comedy, then you're a stand-up comedian. So, cut to, five years later, Schimmel's doing his first CD, right? It's for Warner Brothers or whatever. It's, it's a regular, you know, no, no self-produced CD. It was a CD. It was a, an album done by a real record company. So who writes the liner notes for him? Steve Martin. Steve Martin, that's right. Well, it's funny when you say comedians, because I remember when I got out of college, I had started doing comedy at open mics, and I was still selling fax machines. And I still remember being at a bar, and you might remember it, uh, the bar called The Coastline. It was in Cherry Hill. It was this... Uh, legendary nightclub it was a total meat market and i'm hitting on these girls <clears throat> she goes what do you do i go well i'm a comedian and she looked at me and she goes well if you're a comedian why aren't you on stage saturday night why are you in a nightclub and that's when i noticed you know what <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to bring my game up <laughs> that's funny now your show how do you promote the show? How do you how do you pitch it to different um, clubs? Do you sit there? I know you have a bunch of dates you know, coming the, up. I'm, I, I'm trying to. I, I tell the you know, like, I, I, like any new show, it's like beginning to stand up again. I need repetition. I need to get up on the feet and do it as much as possible. So it's a lost leader for me. I'm not making money with it most places. I made money Saturday night, but most places I go, look, 
just had me in. Let's do the best we can. I'll do a door deal with you. I'll do it on an off day. I'll do it on Sunday afternoon. I've done it in Atlanta at the Lansing School on a Sunday afternoon. We, we drew people in there. It was, it was great. We made a couple hundred bucks. I said, I'm not looking. At, I just want to get it up and do it as much as possible. But a lot of comedy clubs just aren't coming forth. I don't think they see it as something that's valuable to them or it's going to make them money. They're all short-term. They're just business people. You know what I mean? They're like, I don't think I'm going to pack my club Sunday night or Monday night or whatever. So, but there are some people, or comedy club people, who are, who are doing it. So one of Mark Ridley's club in Detroit, which is a great, you know, he was one of the first comedy clubs in the Midwest, still open, still the same guy running it. You know, he's a fan of comedy. He wants to see it. So he's bringing me in to do it. But I'm doing these little weird theaters everywhere, and I'll do it any, I'll do it at any place. I just want to do it. And I'm just promoting and say, look, I'm doing a show. It's a funny show. Yeah, it's, it, I think it's interesting. I'm, I'm bringing your names of people you probably don't remember, never do about. I talked about the first stand-up comic. This guy was a real guy. He was a really wild guy. Was, Lincoln was a fan. Abraham Lincoln was a fan. He's dying out, tells jokes and stories with him. Mark Twain. This guy was a big star. He wasn't some obscure schmuck. Just never got anywhere. He was a big star in America. But there's no record of him you, you can listen to. There's not a comedy album. There's not a video on a YouTube thing, so people don't know about the guy. But I'm going to bring him back. I want people to know about Artemis Ward. Now, you mentioned Twain. I know you, I've seen you post something. What made Twain special to you? Because, you know, he's, he's a legend, you know, and he was, people didn't think of him as a stand-up, I don't think, because he was bigger than that. But what made him a special talent to you? Well, he, look, first of all, he was one of the greatest writers in American history. He did not, you know, he did stand-up comedy. He, he, he went on stage for the first time. When he went on stage, he, he admitted in an essay saying, what I'm doing, I learned everything from watching Artemis Ward do. So he was doing what he saw Artemis Ward do, who created the art form. So Twain, but Twain was, he, look, he was brilliant. He was brilliant, and he had um, a, a different era, you know. Artemis Ward was in the war. He was performing most of his time when he's doing stand-up comedy, he was doing the Civil War, so he wanted to distract people from the war. You don't want to remind them the war was going on in these, in these shows he was doing. But when Twain takes over and he starts doing it, it's right after the war and America's like in that, what he called the Gilded Age, all about the robber barons and, and, and getting as much money as you can and, and, and people just going everywhere trying to make money in America in any way possible. So his humor was more cynical. Every, every time you have a war, afterwards the humor gets a little bit more cynical. And so he's, he had different jokes. You know, he said, um, he said, um, you know, it's not that there are too many fools in the world. It's just that lightning isn't distributed correctly. And he said, you got to change politicians and diapers frequently, and for the same reason. So he had a, he had a, a, a little rougher edge humor than Armas Ward, but he didn't like performing. Uh, stand because of the travel. The travel, you know, comics complain about the travel today, like going through airports, jet lag, or whatever. Of course, it's ridiculous. You know, that's that's the job. They don't pay me to go on stage and prance about and get all that applause. They pay you to get there. It's like complaining. Comic complaining about about traveling. It's like a salesperson complaining about talking to people. Right. It's, that's the job. That's the job. So, between there. There was really problems. Ships sank all the time. That that was, you know, you, the ships were, were rough. There wasn't like luxury liners. Ships were rough. Uh, carriages could, could rattle your kidneys, knock your teeth out. You know, you talk about boats with potholes now. You know, carriage would disappear into a pothole. <laughs> carriages and trains were rough, man. You, 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 you nearly choked to death on the smoke from a train. You know, it, it was a different area. He got boils. He got boils from traveling, right? From sitting on these hard, benches and all. It was it was rougher travel back then. Now, travel. I'm going to talk about travel real quick. I know you do uh, a ship. I know you're going out. Where, which ship are you going on next week? I think it's a region, region explorer. Now, how many shows do you do when you're on a ship? Does it change or is it like one show or two shows? Yeah, it changes. It changes with what ship you're on. I don't work those ships. Some comics do like 13, 14 shows a week or like 20, 25 minute shows or something. Two comics or whatever. I just work by myself. I do the whole show. 45 minutes. So I do two, two separate 45 minute shows. Two separate 45 minute shows. And I also will do this, uh, a version of this history of 
stand-up comedy. They love it on the ships. I do a version of that. Now, what have you noticed? What has your demographic for your crowd been for the stand-up show? I mean, for the history show. Older people love it so far. It seems to be older people really into it. Young people, I don't think by nature, look, when I was young, I say it in my show, I wasn't interested in history. I was just interested in and making people laugh in front of me that night. I could care less how people made people laugh two minutes before I started doing stand-up, let alone 40 years. So I get it. The young people are not as interested in it as older people. So far, that's what I'm getting. But then Saturday night, there are four people there, they, they, four young people. They were like uh, some grandparents brought their, their, their grandkids. You know, they were like 19, 20 or and there were four of them, and uh, they come up afterwards and go, we really enjoyed the show, they really liked it. So I don't know, maybe certain young people, maybe all, I don't know, tend to, I'm just saying the tendency is older people digging it more than the younger people like that. That's what I'm saying. Now, have you noticed a difference in areas you've played, like big cities? And I think, you know, what are, what are some of the towns you've played? Well, I played the, the villages, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, Atlanta, I did Atlanta, and I've done... Uh, I brought up to do Buffalo and Rochester in March and also Detroit, which I said. And uh, I'm doing the Nashville Comedy Festival in Moontown in Austin, back to L.A. Um, you know, I've done bigger cities and small, small places. You know, Obviously, you go to a small place. I, I, they, they put me in, there's a theater called The Strand in Waynesville, North Carolina. It's about 40 minutes from Nashville. And it was a nice old theater. And they do shows there, right? Like musical shows and bands and plays, but as well as show first run movies like 1917. So the woman, they got a place called The Loft, which is a 40-seat, little 40-seat room they, they put in this place. And so she goes, I booked in The Loft. I said, fantastic, I love it. So this was like a, about a month ago we booked a date. And she started putting posters up and advertising the local paper there. And she, she calls me back. She says, oh, we got to move you out of the loft. We'll move you into the big theater because uh, we sold 50 tickets. You're out of the loft now. So I don't know. I mean, I think smaller town places, there's not as much to do. They don't have comedy clubs or things as much as maybe the bigger cities. So they're kind of into it. I'm going to do it in Savannah, Georgia, and in Charlotte, North Carolina uh, in, in, uh, in May. Uh, I'm just doing it the right place that I can. Now, what is it like when you, you do the show, you love it, and then you go on a cruise and you do your stand-up and you do some of the show. Is it hard to balance the two hats because it seems like your passion right now is the history of stand-up, but you know, also you're doing a sh comedy show here and there. How do you balance that? Yeah. Yeah, um... I'll do the stand-up, obviously I'll do the stand-up, but it's like uh, my real passion, what I really want to do is the history stand-up show. <laughs> I, I love getting laughs with Phil Stiller jokes or Mama's Mabry jokes or Tick Gregory. I just get a kick out of getting laughs using their material or telling their stories. I just love that. And it's all fresh and new to me and I'm excited, but if I, you know, it's, it's like a, I, I make more money doing the stand-up right now, obviously. Uh, um, but I do it just so I can do the history show. Right. Now, if you had to do a Mount Rushmore of comedy, who would it be? Of all the if all I'm the right. history, all the history, because you you know the history, you know from the beginnings, who would be your four? I, I couldn't hear you. What, what did you say? The Mount Rushmore of comedy. Who who would you have on it? Oh, the Mount Rushmore? Yeah, this will not be, uh, you know, and I think you have to establish... I think at least the parameters of, of Mount Rushmore should be the same parameters that they use for the actual presence on Mount Rushmore. In other words, these were these were presidents up there who were who were not just outstanding great presidents, but they were key points of American history. So I'm going to say if you're going to if you're going to look at Mount Rushmore, and and everybody would go, well, I'm just going to put Lenny Pryor and Carlin up there, and that's easy to do. Three guys from the '60s, '70s. But that's because everyone's seen the, the videos and, uh, and 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 heard their albums. But I'm going to say Artemis Ward, the first stand-up comic ever. He was a big star in his time. He's the first person. He did it. He set the tone. He 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 he, he broke down the thing that nobody was doing it, and people weren't even a couple.
accustomed to a person being on stage and being funny that much. Comedy, you can't even think back to them. It was, was if you laughed too much back then, you looked at being rude. So they put a little bit of humor in any show, not too much. So he broke the mold on that. He truly pioneered that. So I'm going to put Artemis Ward up there. I'm going to put Will Rogers up there because Will Rogers was as big a star as you can get in the 20s and 30s. There was no bigger star. And he, he did things that other comics had never done before. He did the first long show. Comics only do In Baltimore, you do a 15-minute show. The headliner would do 17 minutes tops. Tops. So he came out and started doing a long show. He set the format of how you did a long show. Did the first tour outside of Baltimore. I will do, and, and, you know, and first got to do critical material, social commentary in, 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 in stand-up. And I'm going to then, then, then I'm going to go with, uh, uh, to, for familiar phrases, uh, uh, Lenny Bruce will be up there. You got to go with Lenny. I mean, he paid the price for everybody to, to say what they want to say on stage. And if you just look at his bits, they're still hilarious. So Lone Ranger and Palladium are two bits that still work today. They say a lot about showbiz and a lot about human nature. And he had a lot of bits. But he was just a very funny guy. And then, then uh, it, you could call some Carlin or Pryor, but I would go with Pryor. Uh, Richard Pryor um, uh, was, a, was the greatest performer and writer combination. And that's what it is. You're, you're, most, most comics are a little better as a writer, a little better as a performer. He, he, he was an unparalleled writer-performer, and uh, every comic after him did the, did the act out the way Richard would do the act out, and um, I'm just going to give him a little bit of edge over Carlin. And then in the original Mount Rushmore, they, they, they were going to put a woman up there. They were going to add one woman to Mount Rushmore, and it was going to be Susan B. Anthony. I don't know if you know that or not, but they ran out of money. They were building the Rushmore during the Depression, so they didn't have the budget to put her up there. So I'm going to add... Okay, I'm going to add Jean Cow, the first, what I think is the first female stand-up and a real trailblazer, and I'm going to put Jean Cow up there as the fifth now on Matt Rushmore. And that's, that's, well, that's, that's good. Well, now, now uh, you'd mentioned earlier um, about Bill Maher and you sent some stuff to him. How do you know Bill? Well, I mean, we met at the, um, Back in New York, when I moved there in 79, he was one of the guys there. He was a young comic like myself, 79. We worked Jersey gigs together. We worked Catch a Rising Star a lot together, where he was, he later became the, one of the, the, the MCs there. Back when it meant a lot that Catch a Rising Star, the MCs would choose who was next. The other clubs, are, the, the lineup was set by, you know, the, the manager or Silver, Silver Freeman at the, at, <clears throat> at the Improv or Lucian or somebody at the comic strip, but it, at the Catch a Rising Star, it was the MC who ran the show that way. So Bill and I met there, and we became friends. We, all, we partied a lot together and uh, and did a lot of gigs together. That's how you kind of formed friendships back and hung out a lot. Now, what do you think of the comedy scene these days? I mean, it seems to you, you mentioned there are, there are so many comics. Like, I sit there, if I see one yeah, more person yeah, on, yeah. on, you know, there's Facebook. They have a picture of them well, with a yeah, microphone, yeah. and then that's it. They have a picture yeah. of them in a microphone. And I, I think they promote their shows just to feel important. Because I'm sorry, but no one's going to see, you know, some guy at uh, Jimmy John's coffee shop in Van Nuys. You know, it's not like you're going to promote that. Well, I don't, I don't begrudge anybody for that. Because the name of the game is stage time. you got to get stage time. The only way you get better is stage time. So you got to find every every generation of comics struggle to find a way to get the stage time. Well, how do you get to the microphone? It was different for my generation. It was for Lenny's generation. It was for the people in Baltimore or the people in the nightclubs in the in the forties. They, they had to work the toilets. I guess those would be like the open mics of today. They work these toilets, these terrible bars that had amateur nights. They go on stage just to get some time in in these terrific bars in Jersey or New York or wherever they were, you know, trying to get stage time. So it's the same thing. They always you got to get stage time. So I don't begrudge anybody that. You have more amateurs today. Than in my day, you never, you just didn't have amateurs in my day. They wouldn't get on stage. They couldn't. Nobody would have any stage time for them. You had to be dedicated to doing it. And today, you have amateurs that you would people who never quit their day job. Remember, that used to be a heckle back in the day. Somebody heckle, hey, don't quit your day job to the comedian. <laughs> now, if you yell that the comedian, goes, I have no intention of quitting my day job. I've got a great four hundred one, a dental plan. I'm not going to quit that day job for the crap. I'm just, I'm just killing time up here. And I get it. I get it because. It's, it's, look, if you're, if you're a young single guy, especially, 
your chances are so much better if you go on stage and get a couple of laughs than if you're just one of the knuckleheads standing at the bar watching it. So I get why the, the amateur thing has appeal, and it's something to do. I get it. But I think the comics, the top-tier comics, are better than ever. I mean, you just look across the board at Bill Byrne and Michelle Wolf and Sarah Silverman and, and the comics doing theaters than ever before. I mean, if you look back in the 70s, there were like a handful of comics you could do theaters. I mean, truly, consistently, go out and, and, and fill a theater. Not like a college campus there, hired by the college. Go pull people into a theater, which is the Snake River jump for every nightclub comedian. It's going from nightclubs to theaters. How many comics have landed dead at the bottom of that Snake River pit? Because <laughs> they couldn't make that jump. I'm one of them. So there's so many comics today who actually can fill theaters. It's, it's amazing. I don't. I can't even count them. Up. And there were, you can count them back in the day. Where Steve Martin, there's there's Robin Williams, maybe kind of. There's George Carlin, Richard Pryor, Cosby was before his show. You'd be looking back at him. He was just doing Vegas and college. I mean, there there just were a handful of comics that could fill theaters back in that day. And today, it's it's a hundred. Now, They're great comics today. They're better. Now, how do you, you know, like, you know, someone like Bill Burr is very edgy and very funny. How do you think that's, you know, do you think, you know, there's such a PC, they say, with a lot of the comics and the young kids get offended by everything. Do you think real comedy is just going to last that out? Because, you know, everyone through the generations has, you know, everyone found, I remember when Eddie Murphy came out, he was so offensive, but he, he lasted out and comedy is still alive. How do you think comedy is going to result now? Because it's like people have to watch what they're saying a lot. You know, first of all, there's always been PC. I talk about this in the show. Always been PC. Coop always has been. You know, back in the day, it, 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 I could show you so many instances all the way through. There was a time when there was a lot of ethnic humor. Like, all these immigrants were coming in. So, they, ethnic humor back in the early Baldwin days, and I'm talking about late 19th century, it was, it was uh, you know, the, the Irish were drunks. Jewish people were money grubbers, the Scottish people were cheap, the Italians were dirty, they didn't bathe, the, the Germans were, you know, uh, a-holes, you know, I mean, everybody had ethnic jokes about everybody, right, who were coming to this country, they're all immigrants. So, it got a point, 1905, in Cleveland, the, 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 the local Jewish leadership and the Catholic leadership got together and they boycotted the Baldwin Theater saying, you better stop those jokes or nobody's coming into the theater. And they, that's PC, right? Yeah. That's just saying what people could say on stage or not. They did it then in 1905. And I could tell you instance all along the way. W.C. Fields, during the height of the temper movement, before Prohibition, before they outlawed alcohol in this country in 1920, W.C. Fields in the, in the teens, right, the 1560s, he's doing a temperance lecture where he, he goes on stage and he's drinking on stage and he's talking about drinking on stage and they boycotted his show. They would boycott his show saying, we don't want him to go out there doing this show. That's PC, right? Yeah. Every group is PC. You go into a crowd, if you do a private gig, any comic that does a private gig, you want to find out what the culture is of that, that, that thing. If they're a bunch of Ford salesmen, you don't go up there and talk about how much you love your Chevy, they'll get PC on you real fast. So you got to find out what the nature of the crowd is you're performing in front of that night. There's a culture with every crowd. Now, some of it's really easy to get, but some of it you got to you got to spend some time. And, and colleges are the same way. I don't hear people say, oh, I won't do college anymore. Well, you're a 65-year-old comedian. What are you doing to college for anyway? You're too old. 22-year-old comedians have no problems working colleges. You know, when I, you know when I quit doing colleges? I'm about 28 years old. And I've been doing colleges, and I realized at 28, I was like, you know what, I, I've really got nothing to say to these guys anymore. The stuff I want to talk about, they don't want to hear. And the stuff they want to hear, I don't want to talk about. So I stopped doing colleges. Every every audience has, has a culture to it, PC. Some it's easy, it's a generic nightclub comedy, comedy crowd. And some it's like you do a special, if you do a, I could tell you stories, man, I love comics. But it, it, it if you do a, um, a recovery show, right, where you're, you're, you're performing for a bunch of recovering alcoholics, whatever, you don't go on stage talk about how much you, you, you got, you bring a beer up on stage with you, like you might do in a nightclub, and start drinking and going, this is fantastic, that's a great beer, how are you guys doing? You know what I mean? <laughs> See how PC they get on you. Every, every audience could be PC. 
I go, look, the people, there's always a line, right? There's a line in comedy about things you can say in public on stage or whatever and things you can't say. And the line's always moving, right? It's always moving. And people have to find that line. And that's the, that's the invisible line that the best comics find and they dance on it. And Dave Chappelle finds the line and dances on it. And Lenny Bruce finds the line and dances on it. And Dick Gregory finds the line again. They always find the line. Even Bob Hope, Bob Hope would work edgy, trying to find that line. There's a story, I'll tell you, he was on his radio show, right? He's doing, he did stand-up comedy. He did like, he kind of set the template for talk shows today because he opened up with a monologue. None of the other radio shows did what he did. He opened up with like a 10-minute monologue on his radio show of just, just pure stand-up because they felt that was his strength, right? So then he's interviewing, just like a talk show, he's interviewing this actress. You know, I can't remember her name, but she goes, uh, she goes, Bob, she goes, uh, uh, he goes, you're a beautiful guy. She goes, well, you know, like, it's just a stock of trade as an actress to be beautiful. I, I, I had to have my legs insured. Goes, really? She goes, yeah, that went to the one and insured my legs. And we were joking, you know, it was so expensive. We, we call them our holidays. We, I named one like Christmas and the other day, other like New Year's Eve. And Hope goes, hey, can I visit you during, between the holidays? <laughs> Of course, he, he gets suspended. They suspend him from the show. They suspend him from the radio show, right? But then there's so many calls and letters coming in going, no, he was funny. But the, 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 the corporations find out later than the, than, than, than the comedians where the line is. The people are letting the corporations know, no, what he said was funny. We get it. All right, don't worry. We get it. You know now, how can people find out about where your show is? <clears throat> Well, uh, I'm going to start putting up more clearly and 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 regularly on my my website richshider.com and also my Facebook page. I put it up there too. And just look for it coming someplace near you. I mean, I, I I don't know what to say. I'm just I'm just going to build this thing up. I'm going to keep doing it. Coop, as long as I can do it, I'm going to keep doing it. Well, it's good that you found that. You know, it's like it's you know as you said, you you've played the clubs, you've you've destroyed for years. And now it's something that you're giving back to the love of comedy, which, you know, it's a lot of people don't do. It's sort of like when a baseball player goes back and coaches or becomes an announcer. You know, they know the history of baseball and they can share it. And it's right because, you know, I mean, you know, you know the history. You've studied it. But there's a lot of people who don't know the history. I was talking to a, just a, a comic in L.A., this young girl who's like, oh, yeah, I want to be in the next cutting-edge stand-up. And I said, oh, who are some of your favorites? Do you, you like Wendy Liebman? And she never heard of Wendy Liebman. And I was like, how can you call yourself a, a com female, you know, your female comic going to excel and you never heard of, you know, someone who was groundbreaking? You know, it's, or they never heard of Elaine Boozler. And it's like, they, it, they don't get it. They're the people who have influenced where they can be. Well, like I said, I don't blame them, uh, and I'm not sure again how many people are, you know, those of those comics are, like I said, are really serious. They want to do it or amateurs, but you, you know, um, you know, Nick Schreiner, Will Schreiner, it, it, there's very few like families of stand-up comics, but the Schreiners, uh, um, Herb Schreiner was a famous comic in the '40s and '50s, stand-up comic. 60s even, of course. And then his son, Will Schreiner, became a stand-up comic in my generation. Then their son, Nick Schreiner, is a comic, you know, now. And Nick, you know, he's interested in the history of stand-up comedy. But, you know, his family's part of that history. I, I don't know if I blame any young comic for not being interested. I, I think that's great when they are. I did a show um, at, at Zany's in Chicago. It's a great 1980, I think, that club over. It's one of those classic small nightclubs of my generation when... The clubs were like 100 people, 150. That was, you know, the comedy club when they first started opening in the 80s. And we did it there, and I, it was it was amazing. There were like 20, 30 young comics there that were really into the show. And afterwards, they asked all sorts of questions, and I went out to get something to eat after the show with my friend, uh, Will Miller, Dr. Bill Miller, and I went out to have a meal with him. We came back, and they're still there talking about the show and about comedy history. And they're like, what books can we read? I gave them some books that they could you know, read and catch up on the history. So I think that there are young comics into it. I wouldn't say they all are into it. Right. Uh, well, I used to say, because I was saying when I used to, when I started out, I would work the Comedy Factory outlet. And the reason a lot of us worked the doors because we got to see these headliners and got to actually, uh, you know, see what they're doing. 
that's what I wrote. Look, when I, when I first started, I wrote in the book, and I think we mentioned both the Kicking Through the Ashes book that I put out. I would sit in the back of the improv or catch a rising star. If I wasn't on stage, I wasn't out in the bar yakking. I was sitting in the back room watching all these great comics. And it, was, it was Gilbert Gottfried, Ronnie Shakes, and, and, and you know, Rich Hall, and, and Seinfeld, and Larry Miller, and Rick Overton, all these great comics. Brenda Hurst, I mean, I could keep naming them. My ex-wife, Carol Leifer, there was a great comics I'm watching, so you learn. Some comics you learn from what not to do. Some comics you learn, you know, what to do. And it, it wasn't just, you know, it was, it was just learning. You know, if I was on stage, I was watching it all the time. Well, that's awesome. And you... It wasn't like today, you couldn't just go to YouTube or, or, or watch a million specials on Netflix or something. You, you, you like to watch it live, and then it was like, you know, Johnny Carson, one of three channels, right? Or, or daytime to be Merv Griffin or one of those daytime shows all have a comic once in a while. So it's hard to watch it on TV. You watch it live. Well, that's, you know, you know, as I said, you're always a history of comedy. And uh, I, I hope the show gets up here in Philly because I think people in Philly would enjoy it. But just Philly's comedy scene is just weird now. But uh, people... Go look up Rich Scheidner. Go to go to YouTube. I'm, he has probably stuff up on YouTube. I'll go to his website. Find out when his show's coming. Go enjoy it. The guy knows knows the biz. He's had an amazing career. So check out Rich Scheider. Uh, go to my website, people, coopertalk.net. I've recorded over, what, 775 episodes. You can email me, cooper, coopertalk.net. Follow me on Twitter, at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys <laughs> next time. Thank you.